So, you've set up a new magical order, Alan. I have, Dunk. Which has aroused some controversy. It has, Dunk. (laughs) Yes, well, we released episode one, didn't we, at the same time Hmm. as I announced a new branch of the Arcanum Arcanorum, which is the regenerated institutional expression of a certain uh, Western tradition. Mm. So it was Crowley's renewal of uh, a connection with the the secret chiefs behind the Golden Dawn. Well, if you're going to create something like that, presumably you have to claim a connection, which you did. Well, there are two kinds of connection. Mm -hmm. There's the connection that you can talk about, which is something that can be documented... It's institutional, you know, that's a matter of um, historical record, right? Yeah. And uh, surrounding that, you get the petty politics around the authenticity of claims and the uh, right to represent that historical institution. Yeah. Right? That's one connection. But there's another connection, and this is the real connection. Now, Crowley uh, took it upon himself to make that connection uh, through an inner means, through his practice. So. Yeah. He took up the uh, sacred magic of Abramel and the mage to make connection with what he called his holy guardian angel. And he did that along traditional lines a couple of times, didn't he? He tried to, yeah. Like uh, making the oratory and importing the the river sand. Yeah. And and all that gubbins, yeah. He tried to Mm. do it um, by the book, but failed. Uh, Why did he fail? The first time, I believe, he started it and then he got dragged into... Golden Dawn malarkey. Yep. Um, Which is interesting timing, isn't it? Yeah. And then the second time he tried, uh, I believe he ended up eloping. Eloping? Yeah. He eloped with his first wife, I think. Rose? I think so. Yeah. Where did they go? They went to Egypt, etc., etc. And what happened in Egypt? He received the communications from Oas, which later he would look back on and identify as his holy guardian angel. Yeah, so just to get this correct... Right, he attempted to contact his holy guardian angel. Mm. The first time it got interrupted by politics with the Golden Dawn, mm. which is interesting, isn't it? Mm. That it would be the institutional means by which you're supposed to make this connection with the divine, mm. right? with his divine lineage, with the gods, with the secret chiefs. It's that institution that got in the way and politics around it. The second time he did this work, but then he went to Egypt mm. with his beloved, who he got married to, where his angel appeared and dictated a book. Mm. It determined and described the entirety of the rest of his incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. And he was horrified by it at first, wasn't he? It took him a long time to to come to terms with what the Book of the Law said and also what its significance actually was. Because... um, as far as I'm aware, he, he kept on trying to do the Arbromelian working after that. So he and Rose went travelling the world, and he's on the back of a donkey crossing China, and uh, hasn't got much opportunity to do the Arbromelian by the book. So he does it internally. He makes an astral temple, and uh, he does the work there. And he doesn't use the Arbromelian ritual itself. He uses um, basically what, what now is known as the headless rite. Well, interestingly, after the dictation of this book by his holy guardian angel which if you think about it is a stupendous magical result isn't it Mm. could you have hoped for anything better should you have completed the six months or whatever it is Mm. on your riverbed sand (laughs) in your you know your special room (laughs) uh, in your robes in your robes fasting and praying yeah could you have expected a better result yeah 
Anyway, after that, uh, it then became his task to experience union with the angel. But interestingly, the instructions didn't come from a book. They came uh, by an inner means. So mm. um, uh, he was told inwardly to achieve union with uh, the Shining One, or the Algoides, mm. as he called it at the time. Uh, that was informed by vision. And uh, when he asked the question how, how to go about doing this, he received the answer, invoke often. Mm. So that was his practice. Every day he invoked often. And like you say, he had an astral version of a ritual that he put together himself. Mm. This would later inform Crowley's instructions uh, that are written down in Magic and Theory and Practice, which is his magnum opus, where he talks about the supreme ritual, how you go about making contact with your holy guardian angel, being something that couldn't be written down or uh, prescribed beforehand. It had to be something that was unique to each individual mm-hmm. and discoverable by that person, you know, on an individual basis. Mm. And yes, yeah, so he practiced that every day for months on end. Yeah. And there was a break in it. Do you remember what the break was? Was it the death of his daughter? Yeah, it was the death of his really? daughter. So yeah. an extraordinary loss happened. Yeah. And through that tragedy, at a certain point, he picked up the thread again, mm. despite the tragedy. And then shortly thereafter, he achieved the union with the angel, mm. right, which he describes in his diaries. And again, this is also something well described by many traditions. There are those people who take up practices to achieve union with God, which is another way of describing the work with the Holy Guardian Angel. In mystical traditions, where the aim is union with God, there are those people that do the practices. They become ascetic, something like that. They dedicate themselves day in, day out, fasting, prayer, whatever the vehicle might be. But then there are some people who have everything taken away from them, everything that they care about. In terms of, you know, the normal human attachments mm-hmm. or relationships or the things that you might, you might even say are essential to being a human being. So often we find strife or tragedy or loss in people's spiritual careers that precipitate an awakening. Because mm. once you have everything forcibly taken away from you, uh, what are you left with? Mm. Uh, just the truth. Mm. Just the truth. Mm. So that can certainly be a feature in anyone's magical or spiritual career that we might see that. And we see it in Crowley's before his union with the angel. Mm. So it's through this means that Crowley established a direct inner connection with the divine lineage that belongs to a different world that's expressed institutionally in his magical order, which he then formulated in in a conventional sense with a colleague of his called, uh, was it George Cecil Jones? Mm -hmm. They recognized each other as having already achieved this by different means. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And they formulated the order together. So there's a, a combination of things there, isn't there? There's the, that institutional face and that inner face. Mm. And that inner work is primary. Yes, without the inner work, there is no authentic uh, outward expression. No. Is there, something has to come prior, mm. which is later put into words, which is another way of thinking about what culture is. Yeah. And, you know, Crowley had that thing happen to him, which often happens in magic, where you make this big intention, you're going to do this amazing ritual, and then the thing that you want just just happens sort of outside of that. I mean, that's a, a fairly common experience. So he's he's gearing up to do the Arbor Meaning, and he elopes and he goes to Egypt, and, and his wife just starts channeling <laughs> this stuff. Mm. There are parallels with this with this pattern in my own magical practice mm. and with what we did with the Baptist head. Right. So in the last episode, we talked about how we met in a uh, chaos magical order. Mm. Right. But you can see, can't you, that we did exactly the same thing that Crowley did. Uh, what I mean by that is the instructions that we followed were self-determined. Yeah. 
Like we were guided to those instructions and we enacted them in our own unique individual ways in order to engage in that process, that same process. Yeah. So the method I use is not the same one as yours, is it? No, no, yeah. it's very different. Mm, yeah, exactly the same as what Crowley did. Yeah. Exactly what he stipulates you should do in the AA. Yeah, and then that maybe raises something about the nature of institutions and magical practitioners because we're all doing that inner work in different ways and yet magical institutions bring us together they would appear on the on the surface to to have some sort of role in you know the continuation of that thread Mm. well there's the exoteric form isn't there of an institution where people come together they follow the rules Mm. they 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 meet the criteria and the requirements and they march the same step yeah right and judgments can be made about one's progress in such an institution based on uh, a checklist exercise. Mm. But what we're talking about is something that happens somewhere else. Uh, The qualification for which is the expression of the nature. Yeah. Like, one one has criteria and certificates, (laughs) right, to make up for the fact that otherwise we would not know one's attainment, Mm. right? But it's precisely the other way around. That which we're seeking to realize through the great work is the expression of our own nature. Mm. And once realized, that's the same thing as expressing that nature, and it has necessary consequences in the world. So it doesn't matter what anyone in the Golden Dawn thought about Alistair Crowley, or indeed what anyone thought about him at all in any way during his lifetime, or even now. Unavoidably, he's the giant, isn't he, of Western occultism Mm -hmm. that has shaped it, whether you like him or not. And in fact, it says in the Book of the Law that um, people would see him as uh, as cast down, as a failure. By all metrics, in terms of appearances, right? you would say he was a, a failure, and yet mm. everything revolves around him. He's the star at the centre of the, the system. Mm. All, all of the celebrities that we have today, they are either in opposition to his work or in some way feeding off the crumbs of it. Mm. What that brings to mind is the current trend for a post-Crowley Thelema. Right. Right. This idea that Crowley as a character is problematic. We no longer need to be beholden to Crowley as a character. Instead, we can move past him and take the philosophy of Thelema, right? which implies that it doesn't even matter whether you think an angel actually appeared and dictated a book to him. That doesn't really matter. You can be a Thelemite and just enjoy the philosophy. right? So it's, so it's like a, a, you know, the liberal Christian version of Thelema. Yeah. So Which he, is, you know, it doesn't matter whether Jesus was really the son of God. Right. I think he was just some kind of, uh, you know, anarchist left-wing teacher. So it would be, from that perspective, some sort of aesthetic thing. That there's this nice story about Crowley receiving teachings from his angel. And it's just a nice story, is that, is that what's going on? <laughs> so there's no actual magic or, you know, any actual non-human being discarnate entity involved yeah yeah at best at best it's the product of his unconscious okay at best yeah there's there's there are some philosophical (laughs) nuggets in there yeah right and you can follow those yeah but we don't need crowley anymore let alone magic so it's just not magical at all then right in that case is it yeah but i (laughs) I, um my position on that is that Mm. uh, instead of getting rid of crowley yeah for a post post crowley thelema we should get rid of Thelema, or the Thelemites, <laughs> right, and just have Crowley. Yeah, because the thing we, what we want to do is, we uh, to, to paraphrase Peter Kingsley talking about Parmenides and how scholars treat Parmenides, mm. um, 
I read Crowley, so Crowley will change me. Yeah. Whereas everyone else seems to read Crowley, so they can change him. Right. <laughs> so that's a, that's an interesting thing to observe, isn't it? That at best Crowley may have received a book, right? But at best, it's the product of his unconscious, <laughs> right? And not his unconscious in the Jungian sense which is an extraordinarily pr- profound conception of what the unconscious is, mm. right? if you actually understand it. Uh, but more in the um, m- uh, materialistic uh, Freudian sense of the unconscious. Mm. Yeah, it's it's the detritus underneath conscious thought. Yeah, right? the subconscious. Yeah. yeah, like the subconscious yeah. that's limited to a person, yeah. an individual's own psyche or mind. Whereas, of course, Jung's conception was far vaster than that yeah. and far more terrifying. As a result, yeah. So, so at best, the origin of everything Crowley did is his subconscious. Yeah, and that the the idea that there might be an origin to this stuff from somewhere else, right, is is completely foreign, isn't it? Mm. So, if you remember when we did the Holy Guardian Angel work, it did seem like there was a lack of other people who had even attempted it or mm. would attempt it, mm. or often I would see people who would attempt it they would start making some movement in the right direction and then go off on a tangent, mm. looking at similarities between the idea of the Holy Guardian Angel and, say, some other kind of tradition or mm-hmm. something like that, as if they were commensurate. And then, of course, there were lots of people who were hung up on meeting the traditional criteria of workings like the uh, the Abramelian mm. um, ritual, such that if you didn't meet the the criteria laid out by a method like that, and how how could you prove that you'd done it otherwise? Mm. Well, it followed on from that that I thought it seems very strange that no one's ever tried just to contact the secret chiefs directly, mm-hmm. as well. You know, in the way that um, many of Crowley's diaries demonstrate. So most of his famous workings are all about his connection with various representatives of the Great White Brotherhood, mm. which is another name for the for the AA, the Arcana Machinorum such as the Amalantra working, the Abuldiz working, and so on. Mm. Yeah. So I suggested that we should try that. Do you remember that? I do. I do remember that. <laughs> and we did. Yes, and we did. And we spoke to a representative of the AA called uh, Tempe. Tempe. Yeah. Yes. And um, there were three workings, weren't there? Mm. And how would you say those workings went? They were puzzling at the time. Communications were very symbolic. I think we got a lot of stuff wrong. A lot of it only became apparent over the years. But at the same time, there were some really mind-blowing things in there. I mean, I remember... Do you remember the... I think it was the third working where you were you travelling the world with your wife on honeymoon and we were getting um, coordinates, longitude and latitude, <laughs> yeah. and um, prophecies about things that were going to happen. Mm. And... Um, all of those things pretty much checked out afterwards, didn't they? Yeah, they ordered, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we we did three workings, didn't we? And we sabotaged the workings at the beginning yeah. with silly occult speculation. Mm. By the end of the third working, I think we'd learnt our lesson. Yeah. You can contact the Great White Brotherhood under the assumption that they can answer your questions mm-hmm. right, about anything and everything to do with the uh, the nature of the world, right? Which is what we proceeded to do. Mm-hmm. We asked all kinds of silly questions about UFOs and satanic yeah, conspiracies, alien, yeah. and... alien invasions, faked alien invasions, mm. false messiahs, 
which had some funny answers to it. But over the course of those three workings, we learned that the sole function of the Great White Brotherhood is your individual uh, salvation, mm. put it that way, if by salvation we mean the unfolding of your eternal destiny, the realization of your fundamental nature mm. in this world right now. Right, So we kept asking these questions that kept sabotaging that process. Mm. And all Tempe wanted to do was tell us when uh, our awakenings would happen, what it is that we would need to do. So ba basically taking the form of prophecies. Mm. Now, prophecy is an interesting topic. My experience with prophecy has led me to conclude that it can take two forms. One of them is telling you when you will realize what is most fundamental to your own nature. Yeah frequently called awakening or the great work we received those prophecies didn't we when they would happen even where they would happen so mm. those longitude and latitude numbers that we got for the andaman islands which is where i went to after i just met the guru arunachalaramana in uh, tiruvannamalai in india mm -hmm. so i went straight to the bay of bengal which is where those coordinates were <laughs> we received those coordinates at the time when i didn't even know i'd be traveling in that direction no now that kind of a prophecy is a bit like your parents telling you that your birthday is in a week right Right. What do you have to do for your birthday to happen in a week? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> why would a, but why would a parent tell you that it's your birthday in a week? Because they want you to be happy and excited. <laughs> yeah. When you when you're a child and your parent tells you your birthday's coming, you can't believe it. Mm. <laughs> mm. I'm going to be given gifts, things that I want. There's literally nothing I have to do to deserve it. It's nothing but an expression of love. Mm. Right. So so prophecy is just like that. <laughs> now, the immediate thing you want to do is try and work out what the prophecy is, uh, how you might make it happen, <laughs> how you might make it, make it happen, which is like trying to make your birthday happen. It's yeah. a fundamental misunderstanding of its nature, which is why the only way you can fall from prophecy is by chasing it. So there's that kind of prophecy. Then there's another kind of prophecy. The other kind of prophecy is where you are told that a terrible event is going to happen mm. right, and the consequences of that. Now, you might ask, what is the virtue of being told about a catastrophic event that's going to happen that will affect millions of people, say, that you can do nothing about? And the point of prophecy when it comes to disasters or tragedy isn't for you to believe what you're told such that you can act in a way that will prevent the catastrophe. It's, first of all, because what's going to happen is a consequence of choices that we've made mm -hmm. the divine does not want those consequences for us and warnings will have been given repeatedly in many ways mm -hmm. so it's out of love that we're shown what's going to happen but primarily because when the event does happen right inescapably you know that you were told about it that you learned about it yeah. either directly or you were told about it through someone speaking on behalf of the divine so that when it happens your eyes, instead of pointing down like everyone else's, instead of uh, contracting into the tragedy, right? instead of falling into the abyss of believing that creation itself isn't worthwhile, which is what these events will do, do en masse to people. Yeah, right? yeah. Instead, your eyes end up uh, pointing up because what kind of power and intelligence could have told you about this event in advance? Even when things are terrible and even when there are consequences of actions that we chose to follow, and when I say we, I mean collectively, that's not wanted for us. 
something else is wanted for us. Mm. But love also means that we get to make those choices, right? Mm. But but in the end, mercy, divine mercy means, even if this is a consequence of your actions, it's not desired that we lose sight of who and what we really are, and that there's always the possibility of the impossible happening. Mm-hmm. Does all that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea that prophecy always has a bearing on awakening. Always, always. So it's worth, for everyone listening, who is so inclined... The, the Great White Brotherhood, the gods, the secret chiefs, whatever we want to call them, mm. they're always there, at all times in every way, waiting to reach out. Right? But that's what they're concerned with. Mm. They're concerned with the unfolding of your realisation, the claiming of your divine inheritance. That's what they're interested in. Yeah. I think I got the first glimmer of that, thinking back. I remember when you decided to go travelling on your honeymoon, that was because you'd had a tarot reading and the fortune teller said to you um oh you're going to get married and travel the world oh so that was that was my wife she had a tarot reading right yeah years before yeah yeah i remember you telling me about that so actually making the prophecy come true because why wouldn't you so what i'm what i'm getting at here is um ordinarily people get readings from psychics or tarots yeah. or whatever yeah and they see it as something that might happen something mm. that can, can be avoided or that can come to fulfilment through a particular course of action but i think when you told me that story for the first time i got a glimmer that prophecy is something that we participate in yeah in an, in another sense prophecy is also inseparable from our own realization yeah it's the same thing so uh, awakenings as the unfolding of your eternal destiny they mean by definition if you've said yes following that thread right that it that it was always the case Mm. which means all your awakenings have already happened Mm -hmm. in the future which is what makes it possible for you to follow the thread in the first place Mm -hmm. if you say no then you're not engaging with or participating in the unfolding of your eternal destiny instead what you're left with is dealing with the shadow of your temporal fate right which is another way of saying this eternal destiny is absent and that this yes or no is actually a test. Yeah. It's a test if you fail it, you failed the test and it still seems to be absent. But if you pass the test, then it was never a test in the first place. And everything in your life is perfectly arranged for the unfolding of what's happening, which is why it makes it possible for there to be prophecy that spans decades, mm-hmm. you know, before they come to fruition. Yeah, now people people could say that means we don't have any free will, there's no such thing as choice, right? Because everything's set in stone. And it must have been from the beginning. But that's not what that means. The The power of choice is beyond how we conceive of it. We literally turn our experience upside down. If we if we say no to what we encounter, to our struggles, right, to our trauma, to our suffering, yeah. to our burdens, yeah. then it remains an empty world of shadows that we're just wrestling with, right? And we contract further and further until we die, mm. right? Uh, there is nothing to have faith in. It would spell out an incarnatory career of failure, one after another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we say yes to what we encounter, right, miraculously it gets turned the other way up, like the right way up. Yeah. That's what divine justice means. It gets turned the other way up. That's through saying yes. That's through us keeping our eyes up. That's what it means to keep our eyes on another world. But it's following that silent knowing yeah. that, we, that we know that there is something fundamentally good that is still worth honouring even in the midst of the worst kind of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an extraordinary power. Yeah, yeah. That's the power of creation placed in the hands of the created. And thinking again about that 
that mundane level that I was trying to describe. If you get a tarot reading, mm. the way to, as far as I see it, to embody what you just talked about is to utterly accept that that's what's going to happen and that it's a good thing that it's going to happen, whatever yeah. whatever that reading indicates. Yeah, but ultimately what it means is <laughs> you end up in a position of absolute faith. Mm. And by faith, what I mean is trust in the impossible or in the divine. And the corollary of that mm. is the complete acceptance that you are incapable of doing anything worthwhile. Right. By your own means. <laughs> anything that you are the origin of, yeah. in the very ordinary sense as a human being, your yeah. best strategies, your best plans, your expectations, yeah. your preferences, your theories, your ideas, yeah. your, your marvellous intellectual constructions, yeah. right, which can be very sophisticated, they're just not going to do it. And luckily, we never needed to make up for an absence of an extraordinary intelligence, right, that can guide us to what is most fulfilling yeah, in the first place. So that's that's what I mean by ending up in a position of, of absolute faith. You can end up traveling through a maelstrom, like the, the worst possible scenario you can imagine. Mm. You can travel straight through the middle of it, right, if your eyes are in the right direction. If they're not, if you lose sight of it for a second, then you get lost in the, in the appearances, you get lost in the shadows. Yeah. What you said earlier about accepting the fact that we cannot do anything worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe that's a good place to move on to some of the criticisms you've had around setting up the order. So in order to set up that order, you've claimed a particular lineage. And there's yeah. been some criticism around that, about that being perhaps self-aggrandizing in some sense. I mean, there's Alan Chapman. He could have just kept quiet, seeing his students in private, doing his little magia thing. But no, he has to come out in the public, set up this order, make this claim about a lineage, bigging himself up, acting like the great guru. You know, where's that acceptance that you can't do anything worthwhile? <laughs> yeah, so the first thing to understand about this is because someone will hear what we just said, mm. right? And it also reflects some comments we made in the first episode that some people have criticised, but again, misunderstood. Mm -hmm. When I say you can't do anything worthwhile, it means participating in the unfolding of your life in a frictionless or effortless manner, yeah. right? Which doesn't mean you don't do any work, yes. <laughs> right? It, it means the effortless expression of your own nature yeah. that's fulfilling in and of itself, yeah. right? Such that the, the path and the purpose become the same thing. They become the same thing. So the details of that unfolding, mm. right? We try and manage it constantly. We try and make it conform to our extraordinarily narrow-minded, one-dimensional expectations of what the future should be like in order to fulfill us, mm. right? Except for the fact that if we're honest with ourselves, we're pretty much idiots, aren't we? I know that's a tough thing to hear. <laughs> I know I am. Yeah. I know that I, I'm not capable of working out the best way of, of creating this expression of a lineage in the West. Yeah. Which is what my purpose is. Yeah. I know that because I spent 10 years trying to do it. <laughs> so maybe I'll talk about that first, actually, and then we'll talk about how it actually unfolded. So I went through many iterations of trying to put into words what it is that we'd been through with the Baptist head, what it is that we realized, how awakening um, manifests, right, and how best to engage in that. And I did it with students, and I went through many iterations so I think people <laughs> from the outside, anyone who's paid attention to what I did after the Baptist said, I think they think I was, uh, I couldn't make my mind up maybe or <laughs> something like that. But I was attempting to put stuff into words and I would do it and realize that it was lacking. It wasn't it, right? So I would keep 
iterating, going over and cultivating an expression. And that was the best that I could do, right? And it was all what Jung would call the spirit of the times, yeah, right? As opposed to the spirit of the depths. Mm. It was all about progress. It was all about uh, applying science mm. to and research to understanding the process. Mm. Um, I made an online platform which fundamentally would replace me as a teacher, mm. right? Because you could just follow this uh, gamified learning platform. Yeah. It's not that the problem or any of these actual uh, platforms or approaches. Mm. It's the reason why I was using them that was the problem. Right. right. I was trying to make up for an absence. I was trying to make up for something. Um, and I had to exhaust all of these strategies and all my best efforts. Uh, everything just came crashing down mm. as a massive failure. Right. And it was only when I exa- I'd exhausted all of that, all of the best strategies available to me, all the best effort I could possibly make, right? Um, it's only when all of that was exhausted that, that I realized that I had nothing left to offer. All of my opinions meant nothing. All of my strategies meant nothing. And I just decided to do a retreat in Greece with a small number of people. And all I was left with was the idea that I would, uh, I would just sit on a chair and if I didn't say anything, that's fine. But maybe I would say something, I don't know. But I had nothing left. And that's then when Magia came along. So I had to exhaust all of the all of the strategies informed by the spirit of the times, if you like, uh, before I could make room for the impossible. There's one scenario where I have the book Magia. Mm. I have my students. I could have just called the order the Magia order. Mm. Or even not even had an order. It could have been some other kind of institutional organization. But for some reason, I've decided to hitch it to what some see as a spurious connection to Crowley through a lineage of people mm. who are of dubious moral character, right? Yes. In order to fully understand why I've done it this way, mm. we need to go back to a particular magical working that we did back during the Baptist head days where you scried an Enochian ether, mm. number 17, I believe. It was. And do you remember when that was? What date that was? December... 2009. Wow, that's interesting timing. Because December 2009 is right at the beginning of when I started teaching. Right. Right. When I started that whole process that culminated in Wiser. Mm. Now, it just so happens that out of all of the many workings that we've done, this is one that we filmed. We did. Yeah. The only one. The only one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, didn't we do another working on uh, Bronze Age Hillfort? We yeah, that was Goetia, wasn't it? We filmed ourselves doing a Goetic working. That was liberating a Goetic mm. demon, wasn't it? Which didn't go well. No, but this one that we videoed was the only one of the ethers that we filmed. Yes. Now, in that vision, there was a prophecy that was made. Mm. Now, interestingly, the spirit Tempe turned up in that vision, so in- indicating something to do with the nature of the great work as it pertains to the lineage. Mm. Yeah, because he's a representative of it. So it was an interesting vision that you had. Well, I did all of the ethers, and I struggled for a long time to work out what those visions were about. But I think you started to notice that there were some pointers in those visions towards stuff that's happened since the Baptist head, and things that seemed to kind of hint at Magia. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's at least there's at least two Enochian ethers that you scryed that contain prophecies that have happened now. Yeah. Yeah. But this one, the seventeenth ether, seems particularly relevant to what's happening at the moment. Oh, we should say mm. for the sake of this episode, we're publishing that video, aren't we? Mm. Of the working that we did. So yeah. people can see uh, first of all what the working looked like. Yeah. How the content of that vision relates to events that have taken a decade to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It does seem a very long time ago we were in a very different place then and I don't think we could have imagined the sorts of things that have happened and the condition of the occult scene at the moment. No, not at all. Like we were saying in the episode one, mm. we remarked, didn't we, on how discourse has changed mm. such that everything is... Uh, fractious yeah. disagreement is an existential risk. Everyone is very sensitive to differing opinions. Yeah, uh, we couldn't have predicted this because this has all been an outcome, hasn't it, of arguably social media. Yeah, uh, the drowning out of moderate voices, uh, algorithmically enhanced polarization of our culture. Yeah, yeah, and the occult scene is indistinguishable from this. It's as if what nowadays passes for occult discourse is no different from the mainstream cultural drama. And the occult, by definition, is supposedly what is not the mainstream, what offers an alternative. And the problem is that anybody who attempts to reposition the occult outside the mainstream is going to be seen, perceived, interpreted from the lens of that mainstream drama. Well, our entire culture, and that includes occultism as a part of it, has been remade in the image of the algorithm. And therefore, anything that falls outside of the algorithm, um, it must attempt to uh, consume mm. right? or, or destroy if it doesn't fit into it. Mm. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that uh, occultism follows the same patterns as everything else in our culture. Yeah. So this vision, it it starts off with the appearance of a lion's head and the astrological sign for Leo. And then Tempe's seal appears, which turns into a pyramid. And mm. the pyramid is moving through space, like a spaceship. Right. <laughs> and it's being powered by all sorts of emotions that, that kind of rose up in me as I was having the vision. Um like violence, feelings of violence, sexual impulses, terror of death. That's what's mm. powering this mm. this spaceship. Yeah, a pyramid is a temple of initiation. Right. And it's also the earth. Yeah. Because they're the same thing. They're the same thing. So we have this this temple and it's travelling through space. Mm. The area of space that it's in, right, has something to do with Leo. Yeah. So these are astrological concerns, aren't they? Yeah. So let's hold on to that for a bit yeah um inside the pyramid there are spirits like tempe you know ascended masters and the those feelings are the power source of the pyramid and mm. they the the beings inside the white brothers are kind of using using that as the means to take this this pyramid forwards yeah well what that's an image of is an image here what we would say is that the base impulses mm. that we encounter in existence, right? They're like the soil 
within which we plant a seed of eternity that grows right and that that happens in existence so existence is one part of creation mm. in terms of the spaceship we have a complete image of creation mm-hmm. and what the point of creation is right so it necessarily includes those base instincts that we find in existence yeah right there even though even those are a part of it yeah cool i mean there, there's a lot of details to to the vision but um you know the next part i think is important is a spirit appears um, a spirit we haven't encountered before an angle <laughs> don't you mean an angel don't maybe we, there were there were a number of times when these angles appeared weren't there? and we did wonder whether yeah. they might be <laughs> angels instead so um, this angle appears and tells us that there are hidden enclaves um, people who we have yet to connect with mm. and they have important teachings that we've not yet encountered mm. so that sounded that sounded very promising mm. it's like wow yeah. right, who could these who could these amazing teachers be and you know of course you ask how can we find these people where are they to be found and the next thing I think that's important that's revealed is these are people that we've not met yet and we're told that they are masters of the temple and yet also that they're black brothers you know right. and, and, and that's puzzling that's puzzling because how can someone yeah. have attained the greater mm-hmm. master of the temple and yet be yet be a black mm-hmm. brother and with these people I start to see scenes from the latest Harry Potter film. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, yes. which I take at the time to to be suggesting that, that these people, these black brothers, are engaging with magic in a kind of superficial or amateurish mm. way. Yeah. So this was bad news, wasn't it? Yeah. We have te- apparently teachers who are gonna teach us something. Right. Now remember we'd already We've already worked with the angel, haven't we? Mm. We've already completed that work. We're in contact with a representative of the Great White Brotherhood. All of this. Why could? Why would we possibly need teachers in the first place? <laughs> Second of all, these sound like the worst kind of teachers you could possibly meet. Yeah. People who've turned their backs on the great work and act in what we might call a counter-initiatory direction. Yeah. Right? And then this Harry Potter reference. <laughs> that they're kind of engaging with it in an amateurish way. Mm. So I remember when we received that, but I was absolutely baffled. Yeah. Absolutely baffled by that. Yeah. I remember you saying, you know, what is there that somebody like that could teach us? But that said, one of the massive things that had a, an impact on the two of us was um, the Andrew Cohen experience, which was something we wrote about and talked about a lot of the time. But our first experience of transmission from an enlightened person was from Andrew Cohen, who was a guru, very prominent, very quite well known at the time, wasn't he? Mm. Who was later accused by his students of all sorts of abusive behaviours, like physical abuse, um, financial abuse, being controlling and coercive. And none of this ever went to court, but Cohen himself basically apologised and, and stepped down, didn't he? He took a... Well, you had to because all of his senior students left. Yeah. Yeah, it collapsed. Yeah. Before. 
And I remember you knew somebody who was a member of his organisation at the time. and Yes, just by chance. Yeah. She sat next to me as a temporary worker in an office, Yeah, which I was. And I think Cohen yeah. was, was taking a cut of people's wages, wasn't he? And telling them who they could have relationships with and who they couldn't. Well, this particular student, she had moved to the UK from Australia specifically to do work for Cohen and the organisation, mm. which meant manual labour. They were restoring a building for use for the for the organisation right. in Islington. They would have a number of jobs, right, and then they would have to pay extraordinary fees to be part of the organisation. But she'd been married for five years, but she hadn't seen her husband in that same period of time because the they were segregated. Right. Under instructions from the guru. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I said, you know, none of this ever went to court, but Cohen himself had to step down. He apologised. He took a, a step back. Yeah, that was a few years later. It was, yeah. yeah. All the proceeds from the organisation, those of now been reallocated to um, various voluntary projects that are intended to to do good in the world. I still get emails from them, apparently. They're still spending that money. But the thing was, our first experience of transmission was from mm. going to a talk that Cohen gave, yep. and afterwards we both had awakenings. Yep, which, partial as they yeah, were. Yeah, and even in his presence there was something going on, something that both mm. of us... Could, could feel and was really palpable and um, yep. both of us were extremely astonished and taken aback by this because what could I say there was a sense as soon as we clapped eyes on Cohen that he was a wrong one maybe not a person that you would perhaps want to trust or even take that seriously Absolutely. I mean after speaking to the student who I happened to meet before we went mm. to the event there was no intention was there of going to see whether or not we might become official students no <laughs> it was merely just to see if transmission was real yeah because he had a reputation for it yeah you know yeah. lots of people yeah. in his presence had uh, reported transmission effects mm. and then that's an interesting that's an interesting detail mm. about the reality of spirituality is that you can have someone who has genuine self-realization awakening yeah. they've brought something here that wouldn't be here otherwise that you can directly participate in yeah if you've said yes to that nature right and that's what transmission is and at the same time it can be someone who you would want to avoid a personal relationship with yeah. at all costs yeah so how do we square that how does that fit together yeah but the first first thing for me to say is i'm so grateful that that was my first experience of transmission because it immediately alerted me to that fact that someone can be a very less than perfect human being and yet still be a conduit for those sorts of experiences yeah. that is so valuable so important yeah it's also worth appreciating this fact it can be easy to get fixated on awakening mm. or enlightenment or realization as the ultimate expression of consciousness mm. now after a certain level of growth come to realize that awakenings as profound and extraordinary as they are is really just the beginning mm. And at some point, there's the realisation that there is something that isn't even going through the process of waking up or of being deluded, yet contains both. And therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Again, in the, in the words of Peter Kingsley, self-realised people are idiots. Right. There's, it's really just the beginning. It's really just the first indications of the emergence of adult human beings. Mm -hmm. But we, we are so impoverished in our cultivation of what should be happening here, that just the first glimmers look impossible to most people. Yeah. And by first glimmers, I mean realisation. Someone we might call uh, a transmitter. Yeah. 
you know, the fact that you can go and experience transmission, I don't know if you remember at the time when we reported it, most of the people who were interested particularly in this stuff came up with reasons why it couldn't possibly be true. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah. I couldn't believe it was true. I couldn't believe yeah. it was true. Yeah, but that's that's the nature though that you're encountering <laughs> yeah. in your face twenty four seven that was impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was about four or five years before the scrying of this ether. Yeah. So back to back to that ether. So we're being told that there are black brothers who are MTs mm-hmm. who yeah. have something something to teach us. Right. And if you remember as well in that vision, which I'm not sure if you mentioned this detail. The, the, a symbol was given of a coliseum. Mm. That's where these teachers would be found. Yeah. Where do we find them? The answer comes back: a building made entirely of arches, like the coliseum. This is the place mm. where those people are to be found. Yep. Or a forum. Mm. Yeah. Now, online at the time was an occult forum called Barbaleth, <sighs> named after an entity that featured in Grant Morrison's *The Invisibles*. And on this forum. I saw some drama unfold uh, involving a number of minor occult celebrities, should we put it that way, part of the younger generation. And there was a big fallout over comments made about the nature of the tradition of voodoo. Mm. So some people were voodoo practitioners, some of them had been influenced by Grant Morrison's The Invisibles that involved the protagonist interacting with one of the voodoo spirits. And on this forum, someone was saying that it was a bad tradition Mm -hmm. because they'd specifically had to help people who'd been involved in that tradition and who'd had traumatic experiences, something like that. So there was this big drama. I remember seeing that drama on that forum. Mm -hmm. And then not long after, I got an email out of the blue to meet someone, and that someone was Vinay Gupta. Right. Vinay Gupta happened to be one of the people on this forum who'd caused the uh, drama to unfold. And Vinay had reached out because he just wanted to connect with interesting people or something like that. Uh, So I went to meet Vinay and I thought, ah, this must be the person mentioned in the prophecy. So the idea of a black brother can be understood in three ways. Mm -hmm. And really they're the same way. So one way is that it's someone who's had an awakening, Mm. a genuine realization, right? But they've turned their back on the great work, on what comes next fundamentally because of an extraordinary fear of what comes next. Now, this doesn't always have to be conscious, consciously expressed, but what it usually looks like is a preoccupation with cultural beliefs, ethics, activism, institutions, morality, Mm -hmm. that acts principally in a way to prevent any further progress with the great work. And what it usually means is, because you've shut yourself off from the rest of the universe, is that the ego, the personality, inflates to fill the space and over time slowly disintegrates. Mm. So this isn't a nice place to be. right? So that's one way of understanding a black brother. Mm. And they essentially work in a counter-initiatory fashion. So as fanciful as this notion sounds, there are actually lots of black brothers all over the place. Mm. A couple of examples. There is the Buddhist teacher Stephen Batchelor. Mm-hmm. He's an example. He spent a long time practicing different variations of Buddhism. Once on retreat, He had some kind of awakening experience that he describes himself in his book, Mm -hmm. The uh, Buddhist Atheist, Mm. as something absolutely unconnected to Buddhism at all, has absolutely nothing to do with it, and he was obviously terrified by it. He turned away from it, and then 
He spends his time speaking on behalf of the tradition of Buddhism, claiming it to be nothing other than a secular or a proto-secular philosophy. Mm. So looks nice from the outside, but what it really means is it dissuades people, doesn't it, mm. from pursuing awakening. Mm. Mm. Another example is Sam Harris. Mm. Yeah. He's had a degree of realization, won't go any further, preoccupied with morality, how to behave in the world, will not let go of particular cultural beliefs, uh, such that he doesn't have to take what comes next seriously. Mm. I don't know if describing those two as counter-initiates is a controversial thing to say, but nevertheless it's the case. Now, there are two other ways of understanding a black brother. One of them is a kind of corny understanding of the left hand and the right hand paths in magic that arguably have their origin with Blavatsky, but which Crowley does associate with the black brother that I've just described in the first sense in his book, Magic and Theory and Practice. So that's the idea. The left hand path is that you reinforce the ego as a, as a path of mastery, mm-hmm. something like that. And you do it using means that are not the traditional ascetic approaches such as meditation, fasting, prayer, uh, isolation, that kind of a thing. Instead, you use forbidden experiences or behaviours mm. uh, to reach enlightenment. Drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, tantra. Yeah, tantra. And, yes. you know, methods that Crowley himself wasn't averse to at various times. No, no. Now, the third way, technically speaking, isn't a description of a black brother but it is pertinent to the position someone might find themselves in where that description might be apt, Mm -hmm. which is why it might be confusing in the vision as to what it is that you were being shown. How can someone be a master of the temple and at the same time be a black brother or or vice versa? So in Crowley's system, once you've achieved union with the angel, you're then abandoned to cross the abyss. The abyss can best be understood as the divide between this world and the world of the divine. And when you cross the abyss, it's the first time you come into contact with that world or with that divine inheritance. And so crossing the abyss is something like losing your uh, magical or mystical virginity. Mm. Right. However, when crossing that abyss, if you don't give up all of yourself to the divine and, and, and some part of your personality remains, that's how Crowley puts it, right, then you'll become a black brother. Eventually, it will inflate to fill the, the space. So it's like that first description that I gave of the Black Brother. Whilst crossing the abyss, you take what's called the Oath of the Abyss. Mm. Now, anyone at any time can take the Oath of the Abyss. So it, it's not dependent upon judgments made by people in an institution, whether or not you can take the Oath. Because maybe you decide, from your own inner experience, that it's appropriate for you to take that Oath. You take the Oath of the Abyss. All Masters of the Temple... Those are people who have successfully crossed the abyss, have taken the oath. Mm-hmm. It's possible to take that oath, though, and become a black brother. right? So that detail is worth bearing in mind. Someone who's taken that oath, yeah. they could be becoming a black brother or they could be a master of the temple. Yeah. Taking the oath doesn't mean either of those are definites yet. So there I was with Vinay, mm-hmm. Vinay Gupta. So it turns out that he's part of a Nath lineage, a tantric lineage. Mm-hmm. It turns out that he's had an awakening. Right. So I was pretty certain this is the guy. I'd seen him on a forum, and now here he is. But what could I possibly need from him? Mm -hmm. So this is back in the early 2010s, and uh, I remember hanging around with Vinay, and he had this extraordinary constellation of rising stars in various different fields and domains Yeah, you know that were culturally important. Yeah, Uh, And they all revolved around Vinay. He was into all sorts of stuff, wasn't he? Well, the thing about Vinay is he's... He will tell you these stories, or people will tell you stories about him, and you won't believe yeah. them, right? And then it turns out that they're all true. Yeah. 
Yeah, so he so, invented the Hexa Yurt, um, which was some sort of shelter for homeless people, wasn't it? Um, had he worked for the yep. CIA or something? No, he'd, he'd <laughs> run a start the Star Tides project in the Pentagon, right? And then and then he for the Pentagon for a department of the Pentagon, and uh, he built one of his sheds, his Hexa Yurt, in uh, in the centre of the Pentagon. That's that's happened. Yeah. Um, before that, he worked for you know uh, an organisation that had some relationship with Buckminster Fuller's work. Mm. I can't remember the name of the organisation. That's where he came up with the idea for this Hexia, which is a way of building relief shelter using industrial standard materials. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this idea for this relief shelter, as well as many other things. Mm. So there are three ways in which Vinay describes himself. Yeah. The first way is that in his Nath lineage, he had a teacher. And she said to him, that uh, he shouldn't teach because he's not a very nice person. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So um, he says that about himself. He shouldn't have him as a teacher. So Vin- Vinay says himself that people should not have him as a teacher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. He's not put together very well. Yeah. yeah. By his own admission. What you would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 The second thing you would say about himself, he's worked on many engineering products principally concerned with helping climate refugees Mm -hmm. Mm. that's how he thinks about the work that he does Mm. and the third thing is that he hands on his numerous initiations to anyone he thinks might make use of them right so that's how he thinks about what he does now i met vinnie a number of times um i did a video with him where he he was interested in my idea that the traditional guru and devotee relationship wouldn't work at this time in this place mm. right so i remember him doing a video with me then i was always reluctant to talk so all the people in vinay's crowd uh, they would give talks they would give lectures they were all doing very interesting things myself i didn't feel like i was in a place to speak about anything mm. right even though i had lots of thoughts about things i was going through this process of working out how to put into words correctly what it is that we'd been through mm. you see so i saw vinay a number of times and then once I saw him and he, out of the blue, in the middle of London, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to make you king of the AA. <laughs> <laughs> now I thought, what is he talking about? And I'm pretty sure king isn't a grade <laughs> or an office. Um, but what he meant was he was going to pass on his initiation to the AA to me. Now, at the time, I, I found this notion ridiculous, mm. right, because... In the same way that I received the news from the vision, from the angle, uh-huh. that we would be getting something that we needed from from black brothers who do magic in an amateurish way. Uh-huh. Same way that I received that with incredulity. Because we already had this genuine connection with the lineage already. Mm. I found this idea of having the initiation uh, superfluous. It seemed, it seemed a bit silly. Yeah. But I thought, as is the way with Vinay, you just go along with it. <laughs> So I went along with it, and he did this initiation in the middle of London, right. uh, and then we went our separate ways. Okay. Now I still, at this point, I still at this point did not think that's what I needed from him, because I I found I was still in that process of working out how to build a Western lineage that wasn't dependent on any any other cultural form from the past. Yeah. So it still didn't really make much sense to me. It almost seemed like a Harry Potterish kind of amateurish preoccupation. You know, like you get these grades from people, you get these initiations, sorry, from people. You know, and then, and they mean something in terms of an institution. 
I still had very low regard for historical claims to authenticity when it comes to initiation and the politics around that. Well, this was literally something that happened in the middle of the street, by the sound of it. It was just a, a kind of funny moment that came completely out of the blue. And what did what did it involve? Was it sort of like, you know, laying on of hands or uh, speaking in tongues or anything like that? I couldn't possibly say what was involved because <laughs> there is an oath of secrecy around the contents of that ritual. <laughs> Which is, of course, why it was done in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Yes, but as you know, Duncan, if you do magical things in public, out in the open, um, people are less likely to see it than if you try to keep it quiet. Okay, so so you had that initiation from Vinay. Yep. And this is the lineage that you've specified in the new order. I think the initiation was in 2013. Right. Yeah. So as you can see, he wasn't my teacher because he doesn't teach. Didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. No. <laughs> I went along with it, but I've I've gone along with worse things, Dunk, as you well know. And yes, this was at the very beginnings of me trying to put stuff together, eventually became wiser. So if this is twenty thirteen, yeah. then seven years later seven yeah. years later, Magia comes along. So the lineage, Alan. So there's you. Yeah. And you received the initiation from Vinay. Yeah. Vinay appears to have received his from his teacher in the International Order of Naths, who is Sri Camila Lalita Mataji. I've not found a lot about her online, but there is um, a copy of a letter where she's appointed um, leader of all the Naths in Canada by yeah. her uh, teacher, who is um, Sri Gurudev Mahendranath. Um, a guy known as Lawrence Miles. Mahendranath. So that is Lawrence Miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was also known as Dadaji. Yeah. Yes. And before it was the International Nath Order, uh, it was Amukos. Right. Now, Amukos stands for the Arcane Magical Order of the Knights of Shambhala. <laughs> nice. It's always nice when a magical organisation has an imaginative name, isn't it? <laughs> But it does have those Harry Potter vibes, mm. doesn't it? Mm. And if you read Dadaji's writings, he does come across as a peculiar man. Yeah. So this is the guy who had a connection with Crowley, allegedly. Yes. So the story goes that Lawrence Miles met Crowley, who was initiated into the AA, but at some point Crowley advised him to go just to go to India and find a guru. Mm-hmm. And so he did, and he became a Nath. Right. Now, there are some people who wish to dispute that Lawrence Miles ever met Crowley. Mm. And I think some of that is fallout from Amukos, where it seems as if Dadaji, or Mahendranath, as he mm. became known, uh, he seemed to lose the plot. Right. Yes, and as many gurus do, yeah, it seems like the cheese slid off his cracker. Okay. Yeah, so it may be that the some of this is overstated in terms of him never meeting Crowley. But yeah. it, would, it would fall in line with this idea that uh, some people see him as a liar and a fraud. Yeah. And um, So we have another dubious character. Another dubious character and also a lot of tedious uh, organisational politics. Yeah. And the yeah. possibility that he never even met Crowley. Apparently. Who can say? So could this lineage, Alan, yeah. be any more strange and messed up than it currently is? I couldn't think of something I would prefer to be associated with less. (laughs) Yes. I have no interest in Amukos, in (laughs) Lawrence Miles' teaching. 
I had no interest in joining a formal AA order. Yeah. No interest in that. Otherwise, I would have in the first place. But here we have it. So, and as I said, once I'd received this initiation, I spent a long time pursuing what I preferred. But then Magia comes along and my work starts to change. Yeah. And I did a, a number of online retreats over a period where I went through uh, a lot of suffering. Yeah. A very difficult time in my life. Uh-huh. And I came out of it knowing that I was about to give birth to something. Mm. Right, that the work that I'd done, the work with the students that I'd had over a number of years, it was all leading somewhere. And it came as a surprise to me on the last retreat, which was this year, that as a result of working with the goddess, whose name shall not be mentioned, an order would be formed. And I realized that the initiation that I'd received from Vinay mm. is what had been prophesied in that vision. <laughs> That's what I would get. Mm. Now, why... Must I be associated with the Arcanum Arcanorum? Why, indeed? Because I get the sense mm. that the real inspiration for setting up that order was um, the experience of the goddess that you talked about. That sounded like the thing that you were following. Yeah, but the thing that I was following led me to realise that that's what I needed to do, mm. was to do the outrageous thing right, and formulate yeah. a new branch of the Arcanum Arcanorum, an institutional tie through the generations going back to Crowley. Yeah. And why would I need to do that? Because, I, again, I could have set up some other kind of order and called it something else. Yeah. Including the goddess. Why, why do it this way? I didn't know the answer. And I'm looking at something that looks bad. Prefer- yeah. Preferentially, I'm looking at it thinking this could be a disaster. I, and I also knew that it would have political ramifications. That there yeah, would, yeah. people would come out of the woodwork to say it was fraudulent, that I shouldn't do it, that, yeah. that it was arrogant to do it. It's not a real initiation and so on and so forth. Everything, everything, I have literally no interest in, you know, when it comes to magic, because it's not about magic. So it's no. all the, it's a repeat of the politics that happened with the Golden Dawn, politics with the Mukos. Yeah, but it's mm. fascinating to, to think about, isn't it? Because you've been given this initiation, you've been given this lineage, it's screwed up, it's dubious, you didn't want it, you would prefer not to have it. And yet suppose if you had set up an order without it, then there would have been criticism because how how can it be legitimate if there isn't a lineage? Possibly, but I also think that it wouldn't be gathering up a specific crowd of people in the way that it is. So I remember in, I think it was 2007, I had a dream. And in that dream, I was stood in a circle with lines coming out of the centre, dividing the circle up into five parts. Uh-huh. Right, And each section represented a major tradition. So one of them was Buddhism, one of them was Hinduism, and so on. And I went around them in turn until I got to the fifth one, which was Thelema. Right. And I stepped down that path, and then I found myself on a battlefield. And before me was a huge group of people, right, all fighting each other. Yeah. Squabbling, throwing stones at each other, hitting each other with weapons. Now, bizarrely, in the dream, it occurred to me that saying something in a specific way Right, would have an effect on these people. Mm. And it sounds strange now, but this is how dreams are. The realisation was that instead of saying, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, if I merely said, do what thou wilt, right, <laughs> it would change what I was looking at. And so in the dream, I pronounce it, do what thou wilt. And all the people squabbling and fighting, they run off over the horizon. Mm. And then all of a sudden they come back 
unified moving in the same direction like an army going to war <laughs> right? and then the dream ends so I knew back then that I had something to do with this tradition something to do with this lineage I didn't know what any of that meant now it seems to me that the reason why I was given the initiation from Vinay was precisely to take something that is chaotic upside down delusional mixed up mm. right to take something specifically like that draw in the culture surrounding it mm. right, and then turn it the right way up the fact that Magia is tied to an order called the Arcana Machinorum specifically related to Crowley coming through a hidden lineage handed down through taking the Oath of the Abyss referencing the prophecy is the precise demonstration right, of the reality of the genuine connection we have with the lineage because it was given wasn't it in mm. 2009 yeah so <laughs> tying the tradition to an institutional expression that causes outrage yeah right that causes all of this drama is precisely a demonstration of its validity yeah yeah it shows you what magic looks like it's got mm. nothing to do with individual preference it relies on an intelligence that isn't human if you consider what power and intelligence must be behind something where we get a vision in 2009 telling us something that makes no sense is even offensive mm. to our magical egos and it's specifically crafted for the situation that we find ourselves in now such that any movement by the poisoned occult culture that we find to try and extinguish it actually feeds into the demonstration of its validity and thereby highlighting the real thing Right. There's, there's only one word for something that intelligent or that powerful. But this isn't the same thing, is it, as, you know, you read a book, you do a ritual, you, you experience a synchronicity. No. This is something else, isn't it? We aren't clever enough to have thought of this. That initiation you had was something that you didn't want, you weren't looking for, you weren't expecting, you don't need, you don't want to be associated with, and yet you were given it, and you've gone along with it because... If you hadn't got it, then people would say that you weren't legitimate. Now that you have got it, people are saying it's dubious, it's spurious, it's nonsense. But the other thing about that is, that's up front now. It's not something that's going to emerge later. You're saying that you know it's dubious, it's spurious, it's nonsense. This lineage that you've got is really the only sort of lineage that makes any sense in the kind of culture we have at the moment. Because it doesn't pretend to any kind of authority. It openly acknowledges that it's dubious, that it's spurious. But it's the expression of its dubious nature mm. at this point in time yeah. that demonstrates the authenticity of the lineage. Yes. Right? Because it was predicted by the lineage yeah. in 2009. Yes. Yes. And yes. it will cause so outrage. Which, it, which will also be a demonstration of the accuracy of that prophecy. Yes, so the more outrageous it is, the mm. more it demonstrates the, the validity of the prophecy. Yeah. Right, so in a degenerate occult culture that's pitch black, mm. right, there's a light that shines. Yeah. Shining there, right, a signal amongst the noise. Yeah. Yeah, and it's precisely using the darkness to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's doing that thing that we talked about earlier. It's repositioning the occult outside the mainstream because the outrage merely confirms the fact that it is outside the mainstream. 
Well, it confirms the fact of the prophecy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It confirms yeah. that it confirms the reality of the magic that's involved. It's truly mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, no one could have thought this up, could they? They didn't. Nobody no. did think it up. No. And in fact, based on appearances, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And for a long time, I tried to do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when we put the podcast out the other week, and um, you know, some of the reaction started to come through you know i started mm. to feel scared i was like oh i'm not sure it was a good idea us releasing that but then mm. when we've been talking about you know you setting up the order and um the you know realizing that it is the fulfillment of that vision back in 2009 you know suddenly i started to feel a bit different about it mm. because i didn't make this up i couldn't have thought of this you couldn't have thought of this no it's it's something that has happened and we don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a demonstration of what the divine does. It yeah. takes something that looks irredeemable and turns it the right way up. And that's exactly what it's doing. Yeah. 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 It's going to be so many people who hate this. And it's already started. Yeah, but that <laughs> they're howling against magic, aren't they? Yeah. They're throwing themselves against the mystery of magic. Yeah. And saying it can't be. Yeah. It's impossible. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. yeah. But this is what magic looks like. This is what magic looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It comes from, from somewhere else. It comes from somewhere else. It's impossible. Mm. And miraculous, isn't it? Yeah. How you can take the detritus and, and turn it into gold. Yeah. The, that which should end it is what confirms it. Yeah. What kind of, what force can do that? So, so to everyone who's got a problem with that lineage that you claim... You know, mm. you, you turn around and you say, "Well, I never wanted this. I would prefer not to have it." Yes, it's dubious. Yes, it's spurious. It doesn't oh, make well, any sense. Yeah, but here's the thing. Now, I wouldn't prefer not to have it. Now, now, the right. worst thing that I could think of is the best thing I could. I it's the best thing that I'm encountering. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't. I, the only thing, the only way I that we've ended up here is to follow something else, mm. contrary to appearances. Because all appearances said this is the wrong direction to go in, mm. right? All all of the informed voices of um, occult e celebs, mm. right, are saying you shouldn't do this. This is not <laughs> how you do things. This is not the future, right? This is not how you progress. This is not a, this is not the right side of history. Mm. Yeah, they're all saying that. They would yeah. all say that, won't they? Yeah. Um, so, because this this is magic, and they're viewing it from within. The cultural drama at the moment yeah and the the sad fact is that most of the extraordinary comments that have been made there is a, uh, a remarkable absence of any idea that any of this could have come from somewhere else yeah right o other than you know human motivation yeah or duncan <laughs> i don't know we're going to end it are we going to end it That'll do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff to end on there, isn't there? Just fade out into yeah, into some synth. Blah de blah de blah. Blah blah blah. Whatever. <laughs> Imagine if this was a live stream. Yeah, wouldn't it be good? Yeah.